0: The
1: gory days, I'm here to say
0: the 80s horror show, take a stroll down memory lane. it's time to start the show, the gory days, the gory days, the gory days, the gory days, the gory days. Welcome to the gory days, the show where we take a stroll down memory slain to remember our favorite horror movies from the 1980s and beyond. Oh my goodness, it's that time of year again already, can you believe it? It is Halloween 2020, well almost if you're listening to this when it comes out, but this episode is uh, my Halloween week episode, so happy Halloween from the gory days, and today is a very special episode of the gory days. Kyle Leone, your host for another week, and what a week it is, I am breaking my tagline, This is a very special episode as I go backwards in time before the 1980s. That's right. I'm doing the unacceptable. (laughs) Uh, I am going to be stepping back to, if you've already looked at the title for today's episode, the 1978 iconic horror classic, John Carpenter's Halloween. Now, why, why have I avoided doing this for so long? Because it's not firmly in the 80s. This movie came out in 1978, and I knew that when I started my podcast. And I told myself and guests and many others that, nah, I'm never going to do Halloween. I'm never going to. I'm only doing 80s and onward. But how could I resist? I mean, it's practically grandfathered in. It came out in 1978. That's basically the 80s, the late 70s. The late of a decade can always all uh, be like... Um, corralled into being the like early part of the next decade so this is still 80s but it did come out in 1978 if you don't know what movie i'm talking about where have you been are you living under a rock on the moon Welcome to Earth. This is John Carpenter's Halloween, a movie that spawned 11, no, 10 sequels. What? Something. It's John Carpenter of Mars is like (laughs) a low-hanging joke there. That's pretty good. John Carpenter of Mars. That's right. Uh, We have um, an amazing show for you today. I'm going to be talking about Halloween, and I want to get started with uh, exactly how this movie got made. Um, I guess I should take a step back and talk about my relationship with this movie i'd never seen this movie i'd never seen it before doing it for this episode uh, for this for this podcast and i was I was surprised how well it stood how well it stood the test of time and how how a lot of it is still pretty dang scary and the stuff that isn't all that scary I can still respect for like starting a movement. This is hailed as not only one of the most successful independent films of all time period it's one of the most successful horror films of all time. And it's so important to the horror genre. It started so many tropes, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk about how this movie got made. So way back in 1976, an independent film producer named Erwin Yablons and his, and a financier named Mustafa Akkad saw John Carpenter's assault on precinct 13 at the Milan film festival And so after seeing that, they got dreams of having their own film with the same impact as The Exorcist, which was, again, another amazing horror film that released in the 70s. So I can say it as much as I want. I'm never going to do The Exorcist, but we'll see. So, of course... Uh, Yablons and Akkad are sitting there thinking, well, we want to be as rich as the producers of The Exorcist. And this guy who directed Assault on Precinct 13, he seems to know what he's doing. Uh, let's approach him and ask him to direct a film about a psychotic killer that stalks babysitters. That's right. Erwin Yablons isn't officially credited, but... It's his idea that invented Halloween. He had this pie-in-the-sky movie idea that he didn't have a script for. He didn't know how to develop. He was a producer. So he just had this idea that, ooh, I'd like to make a movie about a psychotic killer that stalks babysitters. wonder where he got that idea. He and Mustafa Akkad get together. They approach John Carpenter, and Carpenter agrees to direct this whatever idea they have. It's such a... It's such a non-idea. It's just a sentence. Like they came with a log line and then said, oh, but can you make the entire thing to John Carpenter? It's not like, oh, there was a script that was going around making a lot of buzz that they picked up or um, even that it was a short film. It was literally their idea just like in their head, in their dream journal. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a movie where a a psychotic killer stalked babysitters and then they gave it to somebody that they knew could do something with that? So sure enough... As I said, Carpenter agreed, but on one condition, on two conditions, he wanted full creative control and 10 grand. So with full creative control and 10 grand, he and his uh, then girlfriend at the time, Deborah Hill, got together and wrote a script in about 10 days with lots and lots of input from Yablons, who came in after a long draft and told them, ooh, wouldn't it be better if it was on Halloween? And so they amended the script to that. And before you know, yeah, yeah. It was his idea? Mm -hmm. The producer? No, yeah, it was Yablons, the producer, who came in after seeing one of their drafts, which was a psychotic stalker stalking babysitters. And he thought, ooh, this would be better if it took place on Halloween, which isn't a bad idea. I mean, scary stuff happening on Halloween. Now seems like it goes hand in hand but i guess back in the day that wasn't a no-brainer like it is now um with with franchises like fighting over that coveted halloween weekend spot so akkad put up about three hundred thousand dollars which was considered low budget at the time and is still low budget to make a film and in 20 days in 1978 in may they filmed halloween in and around southern california in a mere 20 days and then carpenter composed performed recorded the music edited the whole thing uh well he didn't edit it but he gave it to his editor and it premiered on october 25th 1978 which was earlier this week so it's a uh, it's not an accident that i picked this movie i mean it is halloween so uh, this movie is a massive franchise i was not f- like i said i hadn't seen this movie in fact the first let's see my first experience with michael myers was at a sleepover where they had rented a halloween (laughs) h2o it's called halloween h2o because it takes place 20 years after the first halloween (laughs) i bet they thought they were so freaking clever when they stumbled upon that when they were like oh guys it's halloween 20 years later guys guys look And then he kind of like did a mad fold in between the H and the 20, and it said (laughs) Halloween H2O. And they were like, (gasps) and that was in 1998. So that was my first foray into the movie. And I don't remember much from it. All I remember at the very end is that instead of the final girl beating uh, Michael Myers, it's a black guy doing like ninjutsu with a bow staff. So I thought that was fun. But Halloween has come a long way since 1978. The most recent. No, oh my god, I almost said remake, but it's not. It's a direct sequel. The most recent film uh that came out in 2018 was that Danny McBride script and it's a direct sequel to this movie. So I'm not going to go into it. Uh, maybe I can dedicate another episode to the nonsense that is the Halloween uh chronology. It's all over the place. There are three there are four films in the franchise simply titled Halloween. Like what wh- what kind of franchise is in that? If I said Hey, do you, wanna, do you wanna go watch Halloween? You would have to ask me which one, 1978, 2007, 2009, or 2018? And I would have to say, never mind. <laughs> so, why don't we get to my first uh, and favorite segment, which is, What the Hell Just Happened? So, the original Halloween that we're talking about here, co written and directed by John Carpenter, is a story of Michael Myers a six-year-old boy who slaughters his older sister on Halloween night in 1963 in the fictional town of Haddonfield, Illinois. Whole movie takes place in Illinois in the fictional burg of Haddonfield. Michael Myers, at six years old, is hospitalized at Warren County Smith's Grove Sanitarium. Can we just stop there for a second? A six-year-old murdered his teenage older sister And then kind of just like stood outside of the house catatonic. I love that shot when they like, you know, the whole thing's in POV. I've seen this written about like a million times, but I haven't talked about it. I love the long POV shot at the beginning to make me wonder who is the killer, even though I knew who the killer was. (laughs) Because I've seen seen that scene in like uh, I Love the 80s and stuff like that. It's been done to death at this point. It's been talked about to death. But I loved it. Anyway, the logistics of... Committing a six-year-old, not serial killer, but a six-year-old murderer to a sanitarium, not ju- not juvenile hall, not any kind of um, orphanage or even social services. Nope, straight to the sanitarium, only in an 80s movie. I love it. Michael rotted in the sanitarium for 15 years until finally escaping and returning to his hometown while being pursued by his psychiatrist, Dr. Loomis. Michael Myers stalks the high school student, Laurie Strode, played by the great Jamie Lee Curtis, who I remember my dad affectionately referring to as Baby Lee Curtis. So Laurie Strode and her friends are babysitters. Well, at least Laurie is. She's babysitting that night. There's no evidence to say that the rest of them are. But after murdering Laurie's friends, Michael Myers finally gets into her house, Laurie's house, and attacks her herself. She manages to fend him off long enough for Loomis to save her. And then finally, Loomis shoots Michael off of a balcony about like three or four times. But when they go to check for Michael's body, it's gone. And that's the movie. Like, everything I said sounds like it would be the first act or something. And then his body disappearing would be the big act break. But no, that's the end of the movie. That's what the hell just happened. And I find it so personally fascinating how, like, I couldn't explain this movie in less than a minute... And still, there's an hour and a half of content to tell it. (laughs) Now I can finally talk about some of those themes in this uh, segment. Screaming themies. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, there's that theme of inherent evil. So, like, I am, I've always felt weird with this. I've always wrestled with this. The idea of people, like, of nature versus nurture and evil being just like this pure thing that exists in the world. We examined this a little bit with um, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, which in itself is an homage to this movie and the existence of like pure evil and the balance between good and evil in that movie where, again, they reference Halloween a lot. The the serial killers in that movie have made the decision to combat the forces of good in the universe to like equalize and level the playing field because they think that they're like, I don't know, upholding some kind of balance. Um, Michael is one of the most like divisive serial killers because there is truly so little to his uh, origin and to his M.O. And it's truly scary in that way, at least to me it still holds up those moments where Laurie's looking out and we just see, you know, her POV of outside a window and in a corner or sometimes just right center frame, there's Michael and he's just standing there. And one of the creepiest moments to me, frankly, is when he's stalking um, Tommy because it's, it's this very, very unsettling predator vibe as he's driving around town in his car And just the look of him, just the the white mask, the white William Shatner mask and the the jumpsuit is so, it's so simple. It's so attainable in a similar way that kind of Scream also like plays on in that like it's a Halloween costume that you could have, that anyone could have, anyone could be wearing. Um, But I'm getting away from the theme of pure evil. Michael is supposed to be, at least from Donald Pleasance's characters, uh Sam Loomis's perspective, pure evil. And he's really the only character of authority that we have to 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 examine Michael. Because he killed his sister. He doesn't speak. He's a revenant, essentially. In fact, there's with the fact like his body disappearing at the end, there's this subtle um implication that he's like supernatural or has some kind of extra normal. Uh, uh Abilities about him that he's able to move super quickly, that he's super strong, that he's like a zombie, and that nothing's going to stop him from getting whatever his target is. And in this case, Lori. But I'm trying to think about what the evidence we have for someone to be pure evil. I don't know. Maybe it's because I've been watching Mind Hunter, but the idea that someone is just born evil without any. Any input from uh, family or uh, society or anything, they just are born evil like that. It's hard. It's hard for me to accept, but there have been characters like, there's thousands of characters in literature and movies and TV that are just the bad guys. They are pure evil and we're never given a reason for why. And it's fascinating to see some like storytellers invent reasons. I'm thinking of Maleficent right now. And um, these movies that decide, well, we want to know what the bad guy's point of view was. Um, And I think it's something that happens a little bit more in the 80s as we get these like, you know, Jason Voorhees and his mother, Freddy Krueger and his um, crimes. We get more of a backstory for like who these people are and why they do what they do. Um, But for Michael, he was born that way as far as we know. At six, at six years old, he awoken or whatever. He woke up and became Michael and since then uh, was in an insane asylum. Oh, so let's do the math here. If he was six years old um, when he got incarcerated, when he was institutionalized, and it's been 15 years, 15 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 20, Oh, he's 21. He can drink. That explains it. I was, I was, I remember watching it and thinking he's so skinny. Michael looks so skinny in this compared to like more like more, uh, contemporary and modern portrayals of Michael being this, this like fucking linebacker who could take, could take you down without breaking a sweat. But, we don't really get anything that tells us why Michael does what he does. There's no like even hint that, Oh, he had an abusive upbringing or, um, uh, he, he was an orphan. I mean, he wasn't an orphan. He lived with his family. He killed his sister. I wonder if some of the other movies attempt to do that. And I wonder if it ultimately weakens Michael. Cause for me, a lot of the air about him is that, uh, he, there is so little to dig. I, and I haven't seen, what is it? Halloween four, the return of Michael Myers, where I believe there is a, uh, or no, it's Halloween six, the curse of Michael Myers, or I believe there is a psychic like sibling of his that, that has some kind of like psychic connection with him. Uh, I wonder if it ultimately weakens uh, this idea of Michael, just this faceless revenant who will stop at nothing to get you. But to be honest, going into the movie, I thought Lori was his sister. I I never pretended to understand that much about Halloween as much as I do with uh, Friday the 13th and stuff, but I I thought the horror of this movie was your brother escaped from a sanitarium after so many years, and he's coming home to kill you and finish the job, but he's unrelated. Laurie Strode is not related to Michael Myers. He's just a guy that lived on their street, and I guess it's safe to assume that she was alive at the same time not even it's not even they could have moved here there's there's not enough to establish that but I thought it was interesting because I was sitting there and I I I remember they are setting up the big set piece where Tommy uh, and where Tommy and what's her face are watching TV and um, we know that Michael is across the street at uh, I think Lindsay's house and seeing all the houses lined up I just thought to myself like wow. I know it's not going to happen, but I th- it would be so scary if we just had this kind of, um, like, it wouldn't even be an extended sequence. It would be cutting between Lori watching the scary movie with Tommy and then, like, a couple houses, like, two houses down, Michael is, like, breaking in and slaughtering some family. And then it cut back to Lori and Tommy and maybe she's making popcorn and now he's in the next house over. And just this idea of how much, like, chaos a quiet killer like that could cause on halloween when everyone is out doing something was way scarier to me that said i absolutely forever will love that scene where laurie is holed up in the closet and michael comes barreling through the like um those flimsy doors it's so scary and then when he hits the light bulb it's, it's something about just like the simpleness of that one swinging bulb as he's right there and i'm right there with her and then, he, and then she ends up stabbing him in the eye with a coat hanger. <laughs> this, this isn't a, a literal theme per se, but I want to make sure that I highlighted it at some point. John Carpenter has this wonderful ability to compose for his own films. I liked his contributions to The Thing. I, <laughs> I okay, 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 okay. Don't get me wrong. I love the Halloween theme. It's iconic. It's great. It's grating, it just goes on and on. Have you seen this movie? There's some segments where it's like, there were he only had like six pieces that he wrote in total, and he just stretches that one on forever. Do 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 And you're waiting for it to do anything else or like move on like, to the next hmm. part where it goes like, but it just hangs out doing that damn piano part for so long, and and. And I know this movie came out before the thing, but it's funny to hear a piece from uh, that sounds very similar to like the main theme from the theme thing, if you can even call it that, which is dot dot. <laughs> there's a piece like that somewhere in this movie. So beyond the argument of like inherently born evil and uh, the idea of maybe nurtured into evil, there's also the like sister theme of protecting innocence. Both, you know, innocence, the noun, and innocence, the plural noun. <laughs> um, Lori is given the responsibility of protecting Tommy and subsequently Lindsay's sister and vows to them that she will not let anything happen to them this night. Even when uh, the boogeyman, as they keep calling him throughout the movie, like shows up and he's undeniably uh, he's undeniably real she assures them that she will not let anything happen to them and similarly dr loomis makes a similar promise about not about protecting innocence but i also thought that you know in another sense at some point dr loomis was attempting to protect the innocence of michael himself however lost it already was from his you know first murder that landed him in the sanitarium and he failed Dr. Loomis failed to protect that innocence and now here he is trying to make up for that or undo it somehow by trying to convince anyone who will listen that he's a threat um but protecting innocence and Lori's side is the main thing that like drives her. Of course she wants to survive. Of course she's got that survivability. But we also, uh, carrying with her, is that protection theme that says, like, oh God, she can't die. There's so much at stake, and Lori is the only one that's going to make sure that Tommy and them are safe. If Lori dies, then the kids are gonna die. And no movie in 1978 did they kill kids. So it's a great thematic device for elevating the tension and so far as a theme it's it's harder for me to like uh elucidate more meaning than simply the idea of wanting to protect that which you love from uh an, an unseen force and that's what michael is he's essentially like a force of nature that you can't stop you just try to get out of the way and then finally the last theme i want to discuss is the theme of fate it's uh it's brought up or it's mentioned Um, in the class that lori is in once again they do that wonderful thing where it's like oh if in a horror movie there's a classroom setting the teacher is going to be talking about some overarching theme for the movie while our main character isn't really paying attention except it's lampshaded in this case because when the teacher's like lori weren't you paying attention lori nails it and it's about fate the idea that before you even that lori before she was even born was fated by being a character in this horror movie to be hunted by Michael. But her fate is not set. She is not fated to die by Michael's hand. If anything, you can loop in that previous theme of protecting innocence, that that's what's going to, what's going to keep her, like, not morally safe, but just invincible for the movie is because she's uh, protecting others. But it also plays into the first theme of inherent evil, that Michael was fated to be evil that he was fated to be this horrible, uncurable monster that needs to rot away, like Dr. Uh, Loomis says. So that's really cool, actually, that inherent evil, protecting innocence, and ultimately fate kind of tie into the same theme. Man, if I was doing a report and I was in charge of finding, like, three themes, I would have just talked myself into a black hole by saying, oh, I guess the three themes I found were actually one theme. (laughs) Anyway, let's wrap this up and rate this movie on a scale of one to five thumbs, one being the worst and five being the best. I'm going to give this movie four thumbs. I I am because, it, like I said, a lot of it still holds up, stands the test of time. And even though some of those, like, freaking themes are grating, I literally had to turn the volume down at some point because I didn't know if or when it was going to end. There's staying power in Michael's, like, um silhouette his visage his visage just seeing him standing around he's timeless blue jumpsuit white face mask mask brown hair and uh and i'm scared Jamie Lee Curtis does a good, great job carrying the movie. This was like her first breakout role, which is great. Now, I got to award these four thumbs to four characters or actors from the movie. So I got to give one thumb to Jamie Lee Curtis, of course, carrying the whole freaking movie as Laurie Strode. And then the 2018 movie. Honestly, if nothing else, this movie made me want to watch the 2018 Halloween. That's a direct sequel to the 1978 one, the one that erases all the other films. Yeah, uh, I want to I want to see that one. I'm going to have to give another thumb to. This is fun. I have three thumbs left. I'm going to give them all to Michael. I got to give one to Nick Castle, who played Michael, one to Tony Morin, who played Michael, and one to Will Sandin, who played Michael. Age six. (laughs) It takes a village, people. But that's it. That's Halloween. John Carpenter's 1978 classic that started it all. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Gory Days. And I hope you all have a very safe and happy Halloween out there. Uh, I guess people are going to be throwing candy from their front porch out to trick or treaters just to keep social distance in COVID quarantine times. But what are you going to do? You should give The Martian Broadcast a listen. Wherever you're listening to podcasts right now, it's that podcast that I've been talking about the last couple of weeks, about the week leading up to the Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast. And it's done in like a radio play style. So it's a radio play within a radio play. The Martian Broadcast. You should check that out. But until next time, I'll see you all in November. Stay scary out there. Have gory days.